Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Tim Besley. Um, good afternoon or good evening or good morning, depending on the time zone you're in. I'm, I'm really delighted to welcome you to this year's Morishima Lecture. Uh, I'm the director of the Suntory Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines, which sponsors this lecture, and it's named for our founding director, Michio Morishima. On these occasions, we invite a distinguished economist to address us uh, on a topic of wide interest. And uh, when I uh, learned that uh, Sisi was to be uh, the, the council, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, it was just too great an opportunity to pass up to invite Sisi uh, Rouse to talk to us today. Um, uh, she is the Katzman Ernst Professor in Economics uh, and Education and Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton, and also was uh, recently the uh, Dean of the School of Public and International Affairs. Um, but since uh, the Biden administration began, uh, she has taken up her role as the 30th Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, and that will be uh, what motivates her lecture today. Um, uh, Cece will talk for approximately 40 minutes, uh, and then uh, there will be an opportunity for some questions, which I will put to her, and you can place in the chat and in the Q&A. Um, the title of, uh, of uh, her lecture is going to be Awakening the Giant Beast from Pandemic to Economic Recovery. And we're really delighted to welcome you here today. Thank you for sparing the time in what I know is an incredibly busy schedule. And, and we're all excited to hear what you have to say. So over to you and, and thank you for uh, giving the lecture today. I thought I would start with just a brief description of what the Council of Economic Advisors is and what we do. So we were created by the Employment Act of 1946, uh, and our whole raison d'etre is to give objective economic advice and counsel to the President of the United States and his or her administration. Um, it's a really nice job, in my humble opinion, for an academic economist because uh, in, we are situated within the executive office of the president, which means that, you know, obviously we're in the White House, so there's, a, you know, that's a political organization, but really we are tasked with trying to give the president the facts and to base our counsel on data and the economic evidence. Um, and so we, it, we are organized somewhat like a think tank, some people say, or like a university is the way I like to think of it. Uh, so there's a chair and two members um, who, who lead the organization. And then we have senior economists, which are typically tenured professors, or we get detailees from other government agencies. Uh, and then we have uh, graduate students who are uh, junior economists uh, or staff economists who assist us. Uh, in analyzing the data, looking for the literature, helping us put together pretty slides for presentations. And then underneath our staff economists, we have undergraduates or students who have just graduated from college who are research assistants. We also have a small professional staff that help with the government forecasting, which the CEA leads in terms of our budget and not the budget part of it, but just the economic forecast that underlies our budget. And then we, we do a lot of understanding of data memos that are released. We often get the data in advance. And so we have a statistical office that helps make sure all of those data are handled with the appropriate care. So what's, it's, it's a really nice job because I get, from my perspective, I get to bring the best of economics to help the agenda, the president advance his agenda. So what I'm going to do today is basically give you a tour of how we're thinking about uh, the pandemic, uh, the awakening the beast, which is very much how I think about where we are here, um, about the pandemic, what the, the Biden administration's agenda has been. So talk a little bit about the American Rescue Plan, where we see that the impact that having on the U.S. economy in particular and then to talk a bit about uh, the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan, which are the big initiatives that are currently being negotiated on the Hill uh, and which underlie President Biden's uh, forthcoming budget. Okay, so let me start with the macroeconomic overview. So, you know, you all are older than four or five months old, so you know that life has changed at least in the United States, and I believe in the UK, although you, maybe you haven't, even your lockdown got delayed or your reopening got delayed a little bit, 
we may be enjoying um, a, the spring a little bit more than you are. Uh, but from my perspective, the economic forecast and how we are experiencing this economy has changed dramatically since December, January. So just to remind ourselves, uh, back in January, so the U.S. was looking at an unemployment rate that was about 6.3%. Uh, today, it is under 6%. I think it last came in at about 5.8%. Um, we were increasing the number of jobs monthly, just, just over 60,000 jobs per month. So there was a little bit of job growth, but that doesn't nearly compensate it for the nearly 8 million jobs that we shed last spring. Um, and, uh, you know, as we were thinking about developing President Biden's first forecast, I remember talking to Jeffrey Zients, who's the person who's been tasked with helping with the vaccination rollout first here in the United States, but now he's really coordinating our global efforts. And as we were trying to imagine where the U.S. economy might be this coming fall, we both agreed that there would still be some physical distancing that was in place uh, that we would be certainly turning the corner on this pandemic, but we'd probably still be wearing masks when we were indoors. We, we really weren't certain uh, how effective the vaccines would be in terms of reducing transmissibility, in terms of um, providing protection against the variants we've seen so far. And basically what we've had in the United States, and I'll show you some slides on this, is we've seen that the, these vaccines are far more effective than we understood them to be back in January. And the vaccination effort in the US in particular has been far more effective than at least the, the handling of the pandemic that we were experiencing in this country last year. And I will say no more than that. Um, and so if you look at this first chart um, on, uh, first I, I wanna just focusing on the blue bars, uh, the bars on the left of each side, we see that uh, that we were the OECD, so that's what we're going to rely on here, uh, was projecting that growth, annual GDP growth in the U.S. would be about 3.2% this year, uh, about 3.5% uh, next year. The Congress passed, uh, you know, this was Biden's signature uh, bill in terms of the pandemic, the American Rescue Plan that was in early March. So it was a $1.9 trillion package so this is my third tour in government. And, uh, uh, you know, we used to celebrate packages of millions of dollars. Now we're talking not even billions, we're talking trillions. So $1.9 trillion package. But what was really important about this package is it provided the funding for the COVID relief or for the vaccine rollout. It provided economic support for families and workers, it provided support for businesses to be able to get through to the other side and support for state and local governments. And with the combined efforts, and I think the vaccine rollout really is the most important of those, but the support for families and businesses was also important so we could support our, our, our economies we went forward, it underlies the change in the US. So you can see the OECD revised their forecast for the US GDP growth rate this year to, uh, you know, they basically doubled it or more than doubled it to 6.9%. Next year remains roughly the same as before. So in the United States, we have seen a dramatic change from January to right now in terms of our economic outlook. As you probably know, this means that we are uh, basically, the way we think about it is leading the world. Uh, you may describe it somewhat differently. Uh, so the US is uh, the blue line. Um, and you can see that just like you know the rest of the world, we saw the dip in 2020, uh, in the second quarter of 2020. But really because of the American Rescue Plan, it, you can see in the, the OECD forecast, the shaded part on the right, in 2021, the U.S. Uh, growth has just uh, has taken off. Um, so we are awakening. We are uh, awakening quickly. And what happened uh, to go behind that? So the first is the American Rescue Plan. So the, the line at the bottom, which is in dashed, is personal consumption expenditures over the past year and a half or so. And what you can see is what you would expect. So uh, it's normalized at zero for February, 2020. Uh, we saw this gigantic drop in personal consumption expense expenditures. So consumption dropped dramatically in April, 2020. That's when we all went into a crowd's position, not understanding the virus, 
understanding that we had to power down our economic activity if we were to get through this uh, and minimize the impact on our healthcare systems, minimize the amount of um, you know, harm to individuals. Uh, you know, obviously, if you have a mild version of um, COVID, it's not so bad. That's what my teenage daughters tell me. Uh, but we also know it's devastating and we don't fully understand this disease. So that's where we were in April 2020. In the U.S., though, you can see that largely, you know, we had some robust, the CARES Act uh, was a robust investment by the federal government last spring. Um, and that increase that had that boosted consumption. But basically, as a result of uh, the American Rescue Plan, we have uh, consumption in the U.S. regaining the pre-pandemic trend, uh, getting back to where it was in February 2020 by the second, third quarter of this year. So the, largely the way that we think about it is that the American Rescue Plan pulled forward uh, consumption in the U.S., on top of that, what this graph shows you is the income support that uh, people have had as a result of uh, our federal efforts. So the CARES Act, which was a $1,200 uh, payment to, mo to many individuals in the US, that was last spring. So you can see uh, that that certainly helped to boost incomes. And all along the support that the, the federal government has been giving has been fa fairly substantial. Uh, Larry Summers would say that this is this is sort of in a nutshell why he believes that the American Rescue Plan was just too generous. Um, I, you know, I think it's a little I think it's early, too early to say that. What we know is that uh, many people in the United States were really suffering, and when the private sector when, was not able to have the usual economic activity, not just the private sector, the public sector, we just had to power down our economies. People still needed to pay the rent. They still needed to uh, put food on the table. Businesses needed to get through, um, and we needed to be able to fund our healthcare system. So I, I think I think that that's where the the need was, and and it was important to address that. Uh, so that's what the American Rescue Plan did in terms of injecting resources into the economy. This is where we did what we accomplished on the vaccination rollout. Uh, that again, the top line at least. Um, until the very end where the UK has uh, surpassed us in the share of fully vaccinated, uh, the share of the population that is fully vaccinated. But you can see that the US went from being among the rest of the world at the first part of this year to just having a very robust and very quick um, rollout and getting a, a significant share of the population fully vaccinated. President Biden had a very public goal of trying to achieve 70% of the population being vaccinated by July 4th. Um, we're a couple of weeks, maybe even a week and a half away from July 4th. Uh, we will not make that, although I understand we may get to 70% uh, of those 30 and older because we prioritize uh, our oldest Americans first. Um, but what you can see is we are, you know, we are rapidly getting to that share. What we face in the United States, and I'm not sure what your experience is in the UK, is that we are, is we've had a really robust uh, rollout of the share who are fully vaccinated, and we are, you know, nearing and closing in on 70%, but we are facing a, a fraction of our population that just doesn't what trust the vaccinations. And so we're reaching almost a plateau. And so the share on the right shows you that the share of the population by state in the United States uh, decreases sub substantially in those states where people are hesitant to get vaccinated. The Biden administration is working hard to encourage people to get vaccinated. This is obviously a really important part of truly getting past this pandemic, but these are the kinds of headwinds that we will be facing. And I personally, since my personal belief is that as an economist and not a public health expert, is why I'm a bit humble about where really forecasting uh, confidently where we're headed and whether we're truly fully past this, because uh, especially as new variants are developing, I was reading today concerns in Africa, where it looks like there's been, in, uh, you know, increases in rates of infection and some new variants that are coming on board. Um, we are not through this until we're all through this. And until that's true, I think the economic, you know, the economic ro the robust, the robustness of our economic recovery um, will be a little bit uncertain. Okay, so that uh, I said my 
there's a wide bit of uncertainty about where we're headed. That's what I say there. Okay. That said, we have had a fast reopening here in the United States over this spring. And so the, my, the way I think about this is in the United States, we've got a nearly $23 trillion economy that has to reopen. And that if there are supply and demand misalignments in the short term, that is really only to be expected. So this is a graph which shows you um, uh, the inventory to sales ratios over the past uh, couple of decades in the United States. Um, inventories that sales tells you the number of days of inventory that firms have. And it's a classic way to understand whether there have been supply chain disruptions. So you can see during other recessions, such as in 2009, 2010, uh, during the recession, uh, inventories uh, increase uh, as people pull back in their, in their purchasing, uh, and then they fall back to something that's more normal. Uh, if you go to the far right, you see that there was a big spike up in inventory to sales. Uh, so this is that corresponds to the, the dip in consumption in the U.S., so uh, firms were left, you know, so proverbially holding the bag, right? Um, uh, people, sales collapsed. So firms had lots and lots of inventory. And then what did they do? They liquidated. And many of them liquidated at a loss because they, again, they said, we don't know when we're going to get to the other side of this pandemic. All I know is I'm sitting on a lot of inventory. I'm not making money. I need to be bringing in some revenue. And so they liquidated our reopening has happened so quickly. And again, we were supporting people's uh, consumption with the American Rescue Plan. And so we've seen inventory to sales uh, you know, plummet and continue to plummet because what's happening now is demand for the bit of inventory that firms do have is outstripping their ability to restock um, really quickly. And so what we're seeing is all the way down the chain, uh, supply chain disruptions. Um, in the United States, we also believe that this is likely to be transitory. I think this is, again, part of reopening um, a world, the world, and in the United States, just the United States, but we depend on the world. Um, so if we have a small business survey, um, a small business pulse survey uh, suggested a large fraction of firms report facing supplier delays. The Fed manufacturing survey suggested a record share of firms are saying that they've got delays in their supply chains. But importantly, they also expect all of this to normalize in the next six months. Um, obviously, this might be having an effect on our uh, inflation, which we'll come back to. I just want to highlight that a lot of the increase for us in our CPI has been in transportation, um, and that's largely been in new and used and re rental cars. Again, last spring, uh, auto dealers were sitting on a lot of uh, inventory. They uh, dumped it. Rental car companies liquidated their fleets because people were not traveling anywhere. Uh, auto dealers canceled. This is canceled supply chip orders because they didn't know when demand would come back. And given the lead time in, 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 those, um, in those chips, that has contributed to our lack of inventory of new cars. So again, I expect these to iron out. Obviously, some things will take longer than others, but I expect them to be transitory. Um, in the labor market, we have what we consider two views. But again, it's a market where we have some mismatches between supply and demand. So on the left chart, what I've, what I've plotted is uh, job openings. Uh, so this is reported by employers and you know, positions for which they would like to hire somebody soon. And then the number of people that they have actually hired. And you can see on the far right of that, that there is an increasing gap between the job openings and the number of people that firms have actually hired. This is being characterized in the press as the great labor shortage, um, that workers are not willing to take jobs, but obviously firms want to hire them. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that there is a run up in the desire for firms to hire workers uh, because we've had this fast reopening. There's a question that we are kicking around here at the CEA as to whether it's what speed, what's the speed with which employers can bring on workers? And is there basically a speed limit? Uh, because most workers, when they're hired, they're not just hired on the spot in the spot market. They have to, you know, there are interviews, background checks, 
Um, there's a whole process. They have to have an HR department. Uh, HR departments were scaled back as part of the pandemic, so they don't even have the people in the HR department to onboard people. Um, so we actually are wondering in our minds, how quickly can we get new people absorbed into the labor market? Uh, but we do know that the desire is there and the demand is there. We are all trying to go out to restaurants all at the same time. So it's pretty hard to get a reservation these days. Meanwhile, if we go to labor force participation, um, on the right, you can see that there was a big collapse in um, the percentage of the population that was saying that they were um, either working or looking for work. Um, and that we saw a quick rebound last summer, but it's been largely, you know, you know, there's wiggled around, but has been largely flat since then. And that's because uh, what happened last summer is those who were laid off as temporary to, and temporarily unemployed, they were rehired. Those who were permanently separated from their employers have yet to be hired back. The U.S. followed the path of, in order to get through this pandemic, uh, firms, there was our, our, our paycheck protection program was a small program uh, that was trying to help small businesses keep some people um, employed and on the books. But largely, we didn't follow the path of many European countries of subsidizing firms to keep workers tied to them. So we broke apart those relationships. I saw last spring when I was talking to people about this as I was thinking about the pandemic and seeing these two different approaches, I expected that there was gonna be some period where workers and firms had to get re-knitted back together. And I believe that that is what we are seeing now. Um, the, our unemployment insurance assistance obviously is giving people some resources to take some time to find what they want to do and not just take the first job that is offered to them. They do need to take the first suitable job that is offered to them. But it's given people some time to rethink, but they are they have to search for the next employer and the employers have got to search for the suitable um, employees. So um, we broke those apart. It's going to take a little bit of time to knit our labor market back together. But as I remind people, um, price, we're going to get to inflation in a second, but whether it's increases in wages, increases in prices, that is how market economies equilibrate. Uh, prices are signals. They tell you where there's uh, excess demand or where there's excess supply, but it's part of working towards a new equilibrium. In our mathematical models, things happen a little more quickly uh, than they do in real life. So, um, okay, so I got to the I word, inflation. Um, so we give the OECD forecast here, and you can see that the OECD does forecast uh, that the U.S. will have higher inflation at the end of this year. Um, it, the OECD is not alone. Basically, on average, forecasters are expecting our inflation to be in the threes um, by the end of this year. But the forecast we've seen um, suggests it will moderate back down to roughly about 2%, which is the target for the Federal Reserve here in the United States. Um, uh, so we do expect this to be transitory. You know, we are seeing the inflation pressure in transportation in other sectors that are largely been impacted by the pandemic. If we look at like, um, uh, you know, tips and other uh, tip break evens and other financial instruments, it looks as if inflation expectations are well anchored. Um, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. If I had one, I'd be making a lot more money doing something else. But um, as far as we can see, we're expecting this to be transitory. The price pressure looks, makes sense, but obviously it's something we're keeping our eye on. Uh, we believe the Fed is keeping their eye on and we believe in, um, in the process of the Fed. Okay, so that takes us to the end of 2021, roughly speaking. Um, so the American Rescue Plan was designed to get us through this pandemic. The next few um, slides I want to show you are about the next um, uh, a bit of investment that President Biden is proposing. Um, he's packaged them up in two buckets, the American Jobs Plan, uh, which is largely investments in infrastructure. We've added the care economy to that. Um, that's We call that our modern definition of, of infrastructure. But um, And then the American Families Plan, which I am going to characterize as being uh, investments to help uh, with labor force participation to help families balance work and um, caregiving responsibilities. Uh, and both of these, I, from my perspective, these are not about the pandemic. Even had we not had the pandemic, these are the kinds of investments we needed to be making here in the United States. 
these are the kinds of investments that made it, me excited to come back. I didn't think I wanted to come back. I came back because I saw the, these, uh, these needs in our country, and I saw this as a president uh, and an opportunity to make some significant investments that I believe are long overdue in the U.S. Um, okay, so I'm going to walk you through a few of them um, and hit some of the highlights. So first, um, in the United States, we have not, the, the United States about 30 years ago pivoted to an economic model of really saying the public sector is not very efficient, is not very productive. We believe the private sector should take more responsibility. Um, I, I wrote a piece uh, that nobody would publish. It was an op-ed no one published last spring. Uh, a year ago, uh, called "Government is Not a Dirty Word." So I, you know, self-published on Medium, so you can find it. Um, I really do, you know, when I teach microeconomics, I've always taught that the perfectly competitive model works great under a whole set of assumptions, but there are many places where the private market is not going to fully get get us to, uh, you know, the socially uh, valued outcome. And so, uh, you know, that's where if we have public goods, if there are externalities and the like. So from my perspective, the United States has overcorrected in terms of undervaluing the role of the public sector in terms of infrastructure, research, uh, R&D and innovation, uh, human capital. So that is largely what I believe is economic rationale underlying uh, the AJP, the American Jobs Plan, and the AFP, the American Families Plan. And both of those plans underlie the president's budget. So the, the first slide shows you the, the U.S. investment on the left. It's our investments in research and development. And you can see that from a high of the early 90s, which is when we were doing our space um, investments, uh, that has fallen significantly um, to, you know, it was, over, it was almost 1% of GDP back in the early uh, 1960s. It's, draw, it's fallen to less than 0.4% of GDP um, today. And yet we know that R&D is so important, especially basic research. Uh, in the United States, we talk about the fact that uh, the mRNA, the messenger RNA technology that underlies the Moderna vaccination and the Pfizer vaccinations uh, for COVID were funded by the NIH 30 years ago. And it's that kind of risky investment uh, the kind of investment, if you make it, you know, the internet's another example, if you make it that there may be public goods, it's very hard for a private company to be able to capture all of the return, uh, that's really appropriate for government, and which we need in order to, to be funding the kind of innovation we're going to need from our perspective to address things such as climate change. Um, at the same time, we've also seen a, a, you know, a decrease. It's harder to see here, literally, but if you look at where we've sort of settled out, a decrease in our investments in infrastructure, that's roads and bridges, equipment. If you visited United States Airport, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so a part of the rationale for not doing such robust public investment is uh, believing that private in public investment crowds out public investment. Uh, okay, did I say that backwards? Public investment crowds out private investment. Um, this is a graph, this is some research uh, based on funding from NIH where they take advantage of some of the quirkiness in how research is funded at the NIH uh, that suggests that actually that NIH funding um, can actually increase the number of patent citations, increase the number of patents. So it actually can crowd in some of the uh, private investment and uh, therefore, again, uh, you know, sort of pointed out like the mRNA and other really important uh, uh, medical innovations we've had. And we could do many other sectors. This was example, and I see Tim, so I know I have just a few minutes and this is gonna be a speed walk. Um, another part that's another aspect to these to these programs is very important to the president is that these the benefits of these investments not just accrue to those who already are the very wealthy or those who are the highly educated but that they accrue to more a, a wider range of individuals and so researchers at Georgetown have analyzed the kinds of jobs that would be funded through the American jobs plan and concluded that uh, uh, the majority of those jobs, I think it's 50, 40, 40, 50, 60% of those jobs would actually go to those people who don't have a bachelor's degree. And in the United States, uh, men, that is a group, those are where men are, their labor force participation has been declining. 
um, and they've been left behind as we've globalized and with um, automation. And so that is uh, an important piece for the president as well. Um, this is a, a big part of um, the American Jobs Plan is lead remediation. This is a slide which just highlights um, that uh, when you give grants to areas to try to address lead remediation, it works. And it's an investment in our kids that kids who have, who were uh, you know, exposed to, who were not exposed to lead um, had much better test scores is just one example of many. And then uh, climate change is, uh, it underlies a lot of what this administration is about. Uh, it is a thread that goes through many of our programs. This is just one example that if we're gonna address climate change, uh, we know that transportation accounts for about 30% of um, of emissions. And so we've got a pivoting to electric vehicles as one example. Um, there are others as well. Um, and this is really just saying that we're trying to catch up to you in the UK um, with subsidizations for electric vehicles. Um, another big part of the American Jobs Plan is broadband. If we learn nothing else through this pandemic, it's how much our economies now depend on the internet. Uh, the, this map, I always love having a map, um, shows that in the U.S. and rural areas, um, something like so about 29% of our counties in the U.S. have broadband speeds of between zero and 10 mega, megabips, I guess is what it is, um, and which is not nearly enough for to be able to support students, kids doing homework at home. Um, and having a sibling that's doing something else as well. So there's a big push to both increase the availability of broadband. And then another problem we've got in the US is that in, in especially in rural areas, it's very concentrated. So these areas are paying for slow speeds and that is really expensive. So um, to, the idea is to increase availability and decrease cost. I'm gonna speed through all the other things that are there that I didn't talk about and move on to the American Families Plan. So one of um, the big challenges in the United States is that um, for both men and women, our both employ labor force participation has been dropping. And so this, this is a chart with the flip side of that, um, which is employment. And so you can see over the past 30 years or so, um, the blue line is for the United States. Uh, for men, it has dropped, obviously it dropped during the recession, but it has been falling, the employment rate. And for women, we were leading, you know, at least the, our peer countries, including the UK, uh, for many decades. But since the, the late 1990s, uh, our employment of women has been dropping um, so that now we're behind. Now, we believe that, part, that the part of the problem is in the US, we don't really have a safety net. We don't really have a robust set of policies to help families balance care and work. And so as part of the American Families Plan, we have a child care subsidies, we're proposing paid leave, which you would think, especially coming out of a pandemic, we would think paid leave would be very important, um, and uh, other uh, tax subsidies to help people balance work and family. Um, uh, another aspect that you all and we're all experiencing around the world is decreasing fertility rates. I woke up this morning in the US um, through the pandemic. I wasn't sure last year which way it would go, but our fertility rate has dropped even further as a result um, over this past year through the pandemic. So, you know, when you're just below 2%, which is replacement, you know, you can imagine you can make that up. It gets a lot harder as you're falling further behind. So if we want people to be having kids and to make it easier for them to balance many responsibilities, we're gonna have to help. Um, Child poverty is a problem. This is the most depressing slide in the deck, in my humble opinion. Uh, so this shows you the share of the population um, uh, of ch children who are living in poverty. So the U.S. currently, you know, is behind Mexico and Bulgaria, uh, doing a little better than Costa Rica. Um, if we have a robust uh, child tax credit, which is in the American Rescue Plan as well, um, and that is expanded, much more generous. We're proposing to make parts of that permanent in the American Families Plan. And uh, you can see this is the estimated impact from the American Rescue Plan. So that makes a significant dent in child poverty, which we know has a big impact on children's outcomes. 
So then the, the last part of the American Families Plan are increases in what I'll broadly call human capital. So it's no, you know, it's an open secret that tuition in the United States has been increasing steadily for the past um, several decades. This is uh, uh, public higher education institutions on the left. A lot of that of the increase in tuition is because we've seen a decrease in state support. In fact, if state support had remained at its levels that existed in 2001, this is the chart on the right, uh, there would not have been an increase in tuition for families. So basically what has happened as the states have rolled back their support, that's rolled onto families. In fact, that accounts to about 80% of the net increase in tuition. That has spawned an increase and really a problem with student loans in this country. Um, and, uh, and, and suggests that, you know, we're not supporting students through higher ed. Uh, this is really just a, a chart that suggests in our grant program, which students don't have to pay back, that there is a big impact on students graduating from college and on their earnings later. Finally, uh, in terms of uh, early, early kids, early education, the American Families Plan contemplates um, uh, universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds. And, you know, among economists, this is well known, but this is from the Nate Hendren uh, and co-authors papers suggest that the investments in early childhood education pay for themselves over time. So I, I'll skip the revenue parts um, because I see Tim looking like he wants to ask a question or two. Um, I'll, and I'll just conclude by um, pointing out that Mark Zandi of Moody Analytics has taking all three of those programs together, rolled it up and estimated that uh, over time that the American Rescue Plan, American Families Plan, uh, the American Jobs Plan will significantly increase GDP um, over the coming years. Um, and uh, that is the goal to do that and uh, to put in supports as we spend out the money uh, to ensure to increase the likelihood to you know, really uh, have that growth uh, be more widely shared than it has traditionally been in the United States. Hey, Cece, thank you very, very much. And uh, I have to say, I, I can only stand back in admiration how you managed to handle complete, in a completely unflappable way the uh, technical issues there. I can tell you I would have been a gibbering wreck if I'd had to face what you just did. So so well, well done. I know how well equipped you clearly are for the world of policy as well as the world of academia with that kind of uh, uh, equanimity. Um, so uh, there's a lot of questions, as you might anticipate, coming through uh, the q and I'm going to kind of try and collect what you might call some portmanteau questions that, that, that hit the themes that are, that are coming through. Let me, let me ask you, you didn't really talk about um, the United States support for the global economy. You talked entirely about the domestic economy. Is there any story to tell there? Or I know, I know your focus was on, on, the, on domestic measures, but how do you see the role of the U.S. in, in helping to assist a global uh, recovery, not just a recovery in the United States? Yeah, no, I, look, you know, I think the first part that we have to be a part of uh, and that all, all developed countries that have been fortunate to get ahead on the vaccinations and have the resources need to do is ensure that the rest of the world comes along too, because we all we're, we, we, we are in this together. Like I used to say that about the U.S. provincially, but that is really true globally. Travel won't rebound. Uh, there are supply chain, you know, given that we have manufacturing in different countries, you know, we're relying on these chip manufacturers in Taiwan. If Taiwan goes down, then we're all, <laughs> you know, we're all in trouble. So, um, we know that the, 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 you know, the first job and a, a big responsibility is ensuring that vaccinations are getting out to different parts of the world. But this is an administration, unlike the previous administration, that really understands that we are part of a global uh, ecosystem and a global economy and that we need to be working with our, our partners, um, you know, at, at every step. But I would I would I just want to emphasize the vaccination because I really believe this, our economic situation is being completely driven by this pandemic and we've got to get past this pandemic. Okay, and there's quite a few questions about um, uh, sort of distributional issues. So one version of that is from Michael Harvey, who says, what role do you see for a more aggressive approach to progressive taxation of income, wealth and property ownership uh, in, in the US? And then there's also a question from uh, uh, Ashid Alahi, who, who asks about uh, particularly uh, policies uh, with regards to minorities and, and uh, 
are the policies that are going to ensure, given that perhaps minorities have been subject more to the kind of COVID shock, to particularly promote their interests in the two plans that you've described? So, so maybe you know they're, they're related but distinct elements of this, I guess. And I don't. Know okay, so I'm going to start with the taxation, and then I'll pivot to um, the minorities. So, on the, the part that I didn't do, Tim, uh, was that uh, um, these are expensive uh, packages: the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan. The American Rescue Plan was deficit finance because that was rescue. You know, the, the the previous administration, like you know, Congress, everybody kind of agrees that that was deficit finance. Uh, and with interest rates being so low, at least at the moment, we all knock on wood, uh, that um, uh, we can afford that. That was what we needed to do. The American Jobs Plan and the American Rescue Plan, the president has proposed revenue raisers, and they're all in the category of um, we have to make our tax system fairer. So in the United States, for example, corporates, uh, the, the current corporate federal tax revenue as a percentage of GDP has fallen, you know, substantially even over the past decade to basically, you know, it's like 1% corporations, the tax revenue accounts for about 1% of GDP, uh, which is from a high of about 5% in the mid 1950s. Similarly, we know that the average tax rate for those uh, highest earners has fallen substantially. So the president's um, tax proposals are very much in line of trying to equalize, make more progressive, if you will, our tax system, because we, we know we need to be funding these important investments, and we believe we can even out the, the tax burden. Um, um, uh, so, so, so I would say that that's a big important part. And I can talk about enforcement at some point if someone wants to ask me about it. In terms of uh, racial equity, so um, the president has taken an approach of calling it an all of government approach to thinking about racial um, equity. And that's not just for blacks, Hispanics, uh, Native Americans. I, 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 that, that's the group that I feel most for here in the United States. And so it's, it's you know, there are specific programs, um, you know, even in the American Rescue Plan, there was making good on some um, aid for black farmers, for example. Uh, there's in, in the American Families Plan and the American Jobs Plan, there's aid for historically black colleges and universities, uh, minority serving institutions, tribal universities. But most importantly, I think from my perspective is that every, almost in every policy process that I've been in a part of, the question is asked, what is gonna be the distributional impact? And so that we can equilibrate, we can calibrate uh, where and be most excited about those that will make the biggest difference uh, for communities of color. We know that the, a lot of the, the, paid fam, the paid leave, for example, in the American Families Plan, that's really important for, fam, for families of color um, who, who don't have, who typically don't work for employers that, that offer it. Um, the child tax credit, it disproportionately impacts uh, communities and families of color. So this administration is keeping on a, a very geeky version of, for the CEA is our federal statistics often don't have uh, large enough sample sizes for us to adequately study and learn about different communities. So we, we are, my team is part of processes of saying, can, you know, where can we be most strategic in increasing sample sizes? Again, this is particularly true for Native Americans, but also true for uh, Black Americans in some surveys. Where can we, wh what's the most strategic way we can go about this and to, you know, try to fight for getting the additional funding that these statistical agencies need? Thanks. And I, I'm going to abuse the chair slightly and ask the question myself based on uh, thinking about infrastructure. So actually, before I, I uh, chaired this event this afternoon, I was at a meeting uh, of the UK's National Infrastructure Commission that I sit on, which is our main strategic body for trying to shape the priorities over infrastructure. I wondered how um, you, you think about how to identify those strategic priorities in the US. Are, are the institutions already in place for that? Because some people are quite um, pessimistic about the, the potential for log rolling and yeah. pork barrel yeah. spending and therefore not getting the best strategic bang for the buck with such a large increase in infrastructure spending. So, so, so how do you think about that? Yeah, no, I and I think that's an important question and an important concern. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to suggest that we're, you know, like we will definitely have this down. What I can say is, 
that in the, the, um, the Recovery Act, so this is with Obama, President Biden was the czar of the Recovery Act. And I think that at least the, sort of the Democratic administration, so and there's a lot of members of that team that are here now, including the then vice president, now president, uh, that developed a lot of accountability measures. And not just that, but um, ways of broadening how the government does contracting, how it issues bids to ensure that um, th that the agencies have the capability to assess and understand who they're distributing the funds to. It's something that we are asking ourselves all the time. You know, how are we thinking about, you know, not just, oh, we're going to get a big lump of money that's going to go to transportation, but how then does transportation have the capacity to ensure that it's well spent? It's a really important question that I have in the United States when we got rid of uh, earmarks our infrastructure spending went down precipitously. So I, in my mind, I'm sort of wondering, well, is there sort of an optimal level of earmark? <laughs> and, you know, do we tolerate a little bit of inefficiency in order to get some investment? Because I think that no investment is not the right number either. Um, and so how do we think about uh, the right number there? But, uh, you know, that's a theoretical idea. So an important concern, we're doing what we can to try to address it. An, an interesting question about the housing market, um, particularly, you know, whether millennials' concerns about home ownership are being addressed in all of this. Uh, is it a big consideration in, in, in the kinds of plans that you were describing? So I have, so housing is a very big concern right now. Our housing market, I don't know about yours, is just on fire. Uh, and so, you know, are people being locked? So you have two ends, right? You have those who are buying, or if you currently own a home, you're sitting on a, uh, an asset that is ap rapidly appreciating. Then there are those who've been, you know, are behind on their mortgage payments. We've had a mortgage moratorium, uh, you know, rental assistance, mortgage assistance. Uh, so our housing market, it feels somewhat upside down. There, and then we have these, um, you know, Fannie and Freddie. So we have these, these government-sponsored uh, agencies that help in the mortgage market. These are big, important uh, issues for the administration. Um, we're at the beginning. I, I don't want to say literally beginning. So they're not explicitly part of these plans, but they are part of the president's bigger agenda because, you know, it, it's, it's important among a, man, a number of uh, dimensions, including when we go to the racial equity. We know that home ownership is an important part of building wealth. Uh, we've got huge gaps in wealth by blacks and whites. And so encouraging homeownership among um, our disadvantaged is, is really important as well. And, and, and I know you've had a lot of discussion about inflation, but I want to put a particular version of that question to you, which is, it, it, wouldn't it be actually a, a better world in which um, this allowed us to normalize monetary policy and to get interest rates back to more normal levels and maybe a bit of inflation that, in, that, that gives a pretext for actually raising uh, interest rates might not, not be so bad. Uh, and so obviously inflation staying under control has to be a part of that. But this could be the kind of move that, that people were hoping for, I guess, after the financial crisis, that we would get a kind of normalization of monetary uh, conditions. So, so is that part of the story? So, uh, you know, I'm going to give the, the I'm going to just say it out loud. So the Fed is independent from the federal government. But my read of the new framework by the Federal Reserve is exactly that, Tim, that having interest rates that are at a zero lower bound means that there's really very little room for monetary policy. And that if we want to bring back the capability of the Fed for actually, you know, playing a role uh, when we needed to play a role, having effective monetary policy that they would like to have on average, you know, over some period of time, 2% inflation that they would like to bring back some level infl of inflation, exactly so they have some room to maneuver over time. But that is me reading their new framework. Great. And then sort of one, one question, I think, to wrap up about, you, know, did, you mentioned right at the front that this was a great opportunity for you to engage in uh, policymaking as an, as an academic. Um, when, when you think about now you're, you're in the midst of, of politics, um, how, how, do you, how do you kind of manage the world of being on the one hand an academic giving dispassionate policy advice and the world in which you have to 
it, it navigate the way politics interprets that advice. And are there tensions between those two roles, or are you, are you feeling you're right in the, the sweet spot where there really is no tension between the, the politics and the economics? Well, there, I mean, life is full of tension, so there's always a tension. I, again, this is my third tour. I, I, I was at the National Economic Council back in the late 90s. That The National Economic Council coordinates policy for the administration. So that is a more of a political uh, organization. So, for example, when I was at the NEC, I negotiated a visa bill up on the Hill. The CEA typically is not up negotiating on the Hill, right? We are an input to the administration's policy process uh, so I feel very comfortable. Um, we get to have a lot of input on the administration's perspective, um, a lot of input on what the ultimate policies are. So, you know, we are part of that team, but we get to, I, I often am saying, I don't want to give back my PhD. Uh, we, I might get rolled, right? I might, might get rolled for, because there are many considerations that go into uh, the president's ultimately decision, ultimate decision on a particular um, issue. So I might get rolled. That would be true no matter where I sat. Um, but I feel good about the fact that I am trying to understand the data, understand the economic perspective. You know, I want to be very clear. I share a lot of the president's values and I share a lot of uh, what he's trying to accomplish. So that makes it a little easier for me uh, in terms of what data I'm looking at, how I'm thinking about it, how much I want to help him. So we want to be helpful. Uh, but if we disagree and have a different perspective, we say it. And we are part of that process. And as I will be going on the Hill tomorrow, but I will not be negotiating. And that is, I will be listening because I don't think we have a monopoly on good ideas. Um, and I really love talking to different people, Democrats, Republicans. I like hearing different perspectives so that we can, you know, actually make progress on these really very important issues. Right. Well, I'm going to extend an invitation now for, to, to, for the future, because I guess you're, you're still fairly new in this role. And we would love to talk to you again, maybe in a couple of years when we can see how all of this is panning out and get. To yeah, the there you go. So, so consider that an invitation. But Sounds let good. me say before that, though, we are really uh, grateful to you for um, uh, for spending time with us this afternoon in, 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 in your busy schedule and for sharing all of these insights with us. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, I'm sorry to all of those who, who had questions that were unable to answer, but uh, it's really been a, a treat to be here uh, with you. And uh, thank you again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>